Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On this week's show, we have Sachin Chino Darji, also known as Chino underscore brews over on Reddit. Well, Chino is a contributor at Homebrewing DIY, and he recently just wrote an article about some of the mistakes that even advanced homebrewers make. Well, I had him on the show, and we're going to do a deeper dive this week on Homebrewing DIY. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, Homebrewing DIY listeners. I'd like to talk to you about a company that I'm really passionate about, and that's Brewing America. The reason I'm passionate about them is that when it comes to one of the most essential tools in your brewery, which is the hydrometer, there's just no quality that compares to Brewing America's. They make high-quality hydrometers in America, hand-blown, and all of them are perfectly calibrated right when you get them. You could actually take one right out of the box, do a test calibration, and see that it's dead on, and it's guaranteed. If it's not, they'll take care of it. So with that kind of quality, I just want to put out there that they are a sponsor of this show, and you should support such a great company. So head on over to brewingamerica.com or use our sponsor banner and let them know that we sent you. And welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this show covers it all. On this week's show, we're talking to Sachin Chino Darji. Chino came on the show. We're going to discuss some of the mistakes that even advanced homebrewers make. And we're going to do a deeper dive from the article that he wrote for the show earlier last month. And so stick around so that we can do that conversation for the interview it's a it's a really great conversation but first i'd like to thank all of my patrons over at patreon it's because of you that this show can come to you week after week head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing diy 
Another way to support the show is also to head over to coffee. That's KO-FI forward slash homebrewing DIY. That one-time support is going to help us as well. Really, any support helps the show. And I really, really appreciate everything that all of our supporters have done. Also, another way to support the show is to head over to homebrewingdiy.beer and use our sponsor banners. There you can get Brewing America. You can also purchase Brewfather. Get a, you know, get a hydrometer from Brewing America. It's a, it's a piece of equipment you're never going to regret, and you get 15% off. So great, great deal there. So homebrewingdiy.beer and use our sponsor link. And, of course, you could always write us a review. Head on over to podchaser.com, or if you're using Apple Podcasts, just scroll to the bottom of your app. Give us a five-star review. That helps others find the show. We have generally actually very good reviews, though recently I did get a piece of negative feedback where somebody actually was a little upset about the fact that we had Brewing America on the show and they felt that it was an infomercial. I will tell you that... I didn't think it was an infomercial considering that we talked about how to properly read a hydrometer. Yeah, we did talk about the, their, them and their company, but I feel like we have people from businesses in the homebrewing community all the time and we talk about it, right? I, I think that it's a hobby. You are always going to be supported by certain businesses. And yes, Brewing America is a, is a sponsor, but in the end, I felt like it was a very informative episode. And you know what? The other part is, is if it's a topic you don't like, you can always skip it. That's the cool thing about podcasts. Well, I, I think it's time to dive into this week's episode, and we're going to talk to Chino, where we're going to talk about some of the mistakes that even advanced homebrewers make. I'd like to welcome Sachin Chino Darji to the show. And you might know him from Reddit Homebrewing. It's a Chino underscore brews over at Homebrewing, and or we just call him Chino Brews. But essentially, he's one of the admins over there, and he's also a contributor for Homebrewing DIY. Chino, how you doing, buddy? Uh, doing great. It's uh, great to be back on the show. Uh, man, I, I love it when you get to be on the podcast uh, and one of the reasons we have you on the show this week is that back in June, you wrote an article that I think was probably one of the most clicked on articles we've ever had in the history of homebrewing DIY, which was basically a conversation about the the kind of 10 things that advanced homebrewers overlook. I think the name of the article is actually the 10 mistakes a home, even advanced homebrewers make. And all, and the one thing I would like to say based on all of the comments that we got is I can't believe people were so into auto siphons, but they are. And, uh, you know, it was definitely kind of a, an experience to really see what kind of conversation we got around this article. Yeah, no, it, was, it was really interesting. And, and uh, the title ended up being accidentally clickbaity which is kind of funny. I had an entirely different title in mind, and then under deadline pressure, I don't know what happened. So uh, <laughs> we, we, we ended up with like t t 10 mistakes, and, and a lot of the conversation was around, well, these aren't really mistakes. All these aren't mistakes. Like, well, okay, the, so there are 10 things advanced homebrewers don't necessarily know, that many of them don't know. Um, yeah, but, or yeah. overlook. I, I think the better way to put it is maybe overlook, right? And, and what we're talking about when it comes to advanced homebrewers is, you know, homebrewing is really 
you know, we always go beginner, intermediate, advanced. You kind of think in that way. But in all reality, it really is just one of those hobbies that over time we kind of get built into what our process is, right? And once you kind of get your process set and you consistently make good beer, I would say you could pretty much at that point call yourself a pretty advanced home brewer. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's some arrogance to say that I'm an advanced home brewer and therefore I'm qualified to write this article. But I mean, it's certainly the point where you're consistently making pretty good beer. You're probably an advanced home brewer. Yeah, yeah. And, and me personally, I'll never tell you an advanced home brewer. I just like to be a podcaster, apparently. And uh, and 99% of what I say is opinion. So let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so true let's, the whole hobby. Oh, it's uh, so true. But let, let's talk about auto siphons, because I think that that was kind of the thing that stood out to me. I, I didn't think it was that controversial of a topic. But once we actually dropped this and it started a conversation, we had hundreds of comments on this and and not specifically to this subject, but I would say a majority of the conversation revolved around the fact that in there we talked about, hey, ditch the auto siphon. It's hard to clean. There's, there's a lot of issues with the auto siphon. And it's a very, very common piece of equipment that you see that come with like beginning homebrewing kits, right? And so let, let's talk about, A, what we kind of said in the article as far as, uh, as far as the auto siphon goes, and then really kind of dive into it a little bit deeper than we did maybe in the article. So uh, first thing I would say is you, you talked about how it's hard to clean. What, why don't you get into detail? Why is the auto siphon hard to clean? Well, I mean, it was, it was it was really just kind of crazy. You hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, it, it, it was almost um, th this, uh, hey, you'll pry my auto siphon from my cold, dead finger sort of approach on it, you know? And, um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, my thinking is, you know, that it's it's something, it's great for beginners, but, you know, it's it's also something advanced home brewers should be able to get past. And probably, yeah, this is clearly an opinion I hold and not necessarily, you know, a factually a mistake. Um, so the first thing was, they just look at auto siphon. They're so hard to clean. And, you know, as we learned in our podcast episode with Five Star Chemical, if you can't clean something, you can't effectively sanitize it then, right? And, you know, what you've got is you've got a long hollow tube. It's got a plastic piece, like valve piece that's glued onto it at one end. And then you've got another racking cane with kind of a plastic rubber piece on it, which kind of goes into it and then pumps up and down, right? Yeah. And once you start examining it, I actually ended up posting pictures because there is so much, um, you know, almost like animosity to the idea that this could be hard to clean that I wanted to post some pictures to kind of show what I was, what, what, what I was trying to say to demonstrate it visually. And you really can't, see like past that black end cap there you know and there's a valve and you can't reach it um if you had a long tube you'd think well maybe i'll use a tubing brush or like a a um a gun barrel cleaning type of kit where you kind of drag a rag through through the tube but you can't do that because you can't get through that area and so ultimately what you end up with is there could be like dried up wort in there yeast you know microbes bacteria and because I can't visually verify that it's clean, I can't get my hands on there. I just don't feel very comfortable. Yeah, it's it's kind of one of those nook it, nooks and crannies that you're never really going to get to. And and on top of that is plastic, right? So it scratches super easy. So if you're in there with a brush, you could be like damaging it, scratching it, and these are the things that when 
when people, one of the big places for me when somebody says to me, hey, I've got an infection. I don't know where it is. We always say, just throw out all your plastics. That includes the auto siphon, right? Because it's plastic. And and it's something where it's like there is a there's usually it's probably the hardest piece of plastic to to clean me personally. And this is my personal experience with an auto siphon. They crack. They crack bad. Uh, You you get one, maybe two soaks in a in a in a in in some PBW and they they start to actually have visual cracks in them. And at that point, if you have visual cracks in your plastic there's no way it's getting clean. You now have places for a lot of heat yeast to hide. And this is a device that you use to rack off of yeast. So you're like sticking it right into the yeast cake of whatever you're actually fermenting it off, uh, racking it off of. Yeah. So I mean, God, me God help you. if Yeah. Right. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and God help you if you got like a diastatic type yeast, like a, like a bell saison or French saison, you know, that, that yeast is going to be living in those like tempting little cracks forever. Yeah, it'll never go away, right? It's, yeah, it's and, just it is what it is, and and that's a remarkable and, thing too, right? That you know you kind of noted it's like it's PBW or any kind of percarbonate based cleaning solution, like you know One Step, Easy Clean, um, Oxy Clean, but it's also Star Sand, and it's just weird how like those spiderweb cracks develop in that polycarbonate. It's kind of like you, you see that cool like glass effect sometimes, where it's like, oh look, this glass is really cracked, but it's not really cracked, you know. Maybe you'll see that in restaurants or, or other things. But when your auto siphon looks like that, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. And, and uh, the other thing that I think you called out really well was the fact that, you know, it, it it's adding CO2 to the actual process here. I mean, O2 to the process. When you're trying to not have any oxygen throughout your process, uh, and we're now at a place in homebrewing where 10 years ago it was like, you know, what is the worst thing you could do in homebrewing? And it, and it was, you know, uh, hey, make sure that you're, you're, you're cleaning everything and you're, you have really good cleanliness. Ten years ago, that was what everybody talked about. Obviously, we still talk about it today. But I would say the number one thing that people talk about when they're like, oh, hey, why is my beer taste off? They're like, it's got oxygen in it, right? That's, that is the, the modern-day fear of all homebrewers, right? Yet you take out your auto siphon and you basically lift it up and drop a big huge blub of oxygen right into your beer i mean there's no other way to yeah. put that in there no i I, th- I think that's fair and look i'll be the first to admit that i thought the auto siphon was the greatest thing um i had started brewing in the mid 90s and then i had a really long hiatus just due to you know work demands and other reasons and i came back into the hobby around like uh, 2012 2013 and at the time, I was like, wow, how great is this? Because I remember hating siphoning with the piece of plastic tubing. Yeah. Um, I didn't know how to do it, you know? And um, frankly, it sucked. And that's because I had no clue, you know, how easy it was. And, you know, so here we have the auto siphon, but, you know, you're absolutely right. The beers that we make today, though, are different than the beers that we made in the mid 90s. And, you know, you've got styles like like New England IPA, by far the most popular style to homebrew, I'm sure, you know, followed hard by double IPA and IPA, you know, all styles that are just super susceptible to to um, oxygen damage. And then even beyond that, like American Pale Ales and the Pilsners, like, you know, where you um, j- j- just had an article about Italian Pilsners by, you know, by Ryan Packmeyer. And there's a New Zealand Pilsner article coming up. All these hoppy beers, they don't like oxygen. And 
I mean, to me, it's not just the initial squirt or the initial push, maybe two or three pumps to get that auto siphon going. But, you know, what you see is, hey, there's bubbles. There's bubbles getting into the tubing. And, you know, some of those are residual CO2 coming out of solution when there's like a Venturi effect type of thing happening where the tubing goes from wider to narrow. But a lot of that we've learned just from experience on, on Reddit and other forums, it's oxygen, which is kind of coming in between that outer shell and then the inner racking cane part. Um, and that's just bad. Yeah. Now, there, there are solutions to that. Like people say, well, you know, um, use keg lube on the seal or um, a more effective solution is to fill, fill that little gap with star sand. But when you get to that point where you're kind of coming up with like janky um, jury rig solutions to something that's not working, maybe it's time to look at a different solution, right? Well, and um, that and the solution's so easy. It's like a ball valve on your kettle, right? Solves it all together. You never have to have it because you're just pulling it right out of the bottom. An- another easy solution would be just to do a standard old school siphon where you you know, have some liquid in it and you adjust it and boom, it works, right? It's not hard to do. And it's, it, it works and doesn't really have some of the negatives that you get from the auto siphon. Yeah. I mean, for sure. And, um, so, and, and as a proof of concept on that, so I, I eventually learned to siphon, you know, the old fashioned way using a rack and cane. I use a stainless steel rack and cane just because I know I can clean it. I know I can fully sterilize it in the oven at 300 degrees for three hours, um, along with some PVC or plastic tubing. But the real trick to it is a little tubing clip. It's like a dollar, dollar fifty at your local homebrew store or online supplier. And th- that's the secret trick that allows you to fill that siphon with star sand or other no-rinse sanitizer, iodoform maybe. And then once you've got it set up the way you want, you open that clip, drain your sanitizer into like a dump bucket or something, move the clip it again, move your tubing into the vessel you're racking into, and then gently open it up again. And you just get like a beautiful pour. Um, it just works ideally. And to prove that, I taught my my kid, who he was 10 at the time, I believe, to do this. And he got the hang of it using water in 10 minutes. Yeah, it's not it's not hard to do. It's just being taught how to do it properly, right? Yeah, just you just it's, learn once, you know. And and yep. that's the funny thing is that look, the, the reason the auto siphon is so great, it's not for homebrewers. It's great for local homebrew stores because they've been relieved from from having to teach people how to siphon. And that was really one of the hardest things. I've talked to people who worked in the homebrew stores in that era. Is that was the number one question they got, you know? Um, or at least, or at least like kind of top, top tied for top one is, well, how do I siphon? Yeah. Well, cause the number one thing it says on your instructions are don't put your lips on it to siphon. <laughs> 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 so, uh, let, there, there, you know, one thing that did come out of that conversation though, was there were a lot of people that were like, Hey, uh, you know, SS Brutech makes a stainless steel auto siphon as well. And I remember back in the day when somebody was like, Hey, why doesn't a stainless steel auto siphon actually exist? I remember that actual was a, was a conversation I had years ago and they do exist today and they are better materials. So you're less likely to have a lot of that, uh, the, the cracking and the, the ability to clean, but uh, even in even in that instance, I still think that from the auto siphon, you still have you could have problems with o- oxygen ingress, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, it's nice that it's stainless steel and silicone, and you can fully boil it, um, sterilize in the oven even, because it should be good to 450 degrees. And so that's nice. And the silicone seal should work better, but ultimately you can't be 100% confident that some oxygen is not sneaking in there like you can be with just one solid piece of tubing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and there's another solution out there too, which is – and. Um, Forgive me. So there's a guy on on Homebrew Talk called Fly Guy, and I think he calls it the T siphon, like T E E, like the letter T, and which is basically like you know, um, three pieces of tubing joined by a T, which is also I think another great solution that that solves all the problems we're talking about. And yeah, maybe yeah. we can link that in the show notes. Uh, we're going to have to link it to the show notes because I've never <laughs> heard of this. I've never, I've never heard of the T solution. And I'm now curious. Yeah, now and, I've committed uh, you to it. Yep, I'm committed to it. Now, I get, now, now I'm going to go down a rabbit hole of uh, forums to track down the, the, the ever lost uh, replacement to the auto siphon. <laughs> right. Well, what's going to end up happening is I'm going to like have misremembered this, and it's like totally not what I described. oh oh, yeah that's that is one of the problems we have but but the other part is is you know we're talking about plastic tubing i think plastic tubing is a big part of all of this conversation and i think that this rolls right into our next one that i think is something that a lot of people don't do enough which is replacing your frequent your replacing your tubing enough right uh because in the end Tubing is a porous substance. It's not the same as like stainless steel. And so the the cleanly the, the cleaning factor, it's never gonna get as clean as we could with like a stainless steel kettle, right? And yeah. so in, in the end, it's it's an item you want to replace frequently. And a lot of us hold on to plastics because you know it's money and we don't want to just throw it away. And uh love to hear a little bit about, you know, kind of what you've heard over the years when it comes to st- to, to plastic tubing. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And like, I think we're delving into topics that you've gotten a preview, I think, of, of future articles coming up. And uh, so, so this is not one of the ones that was in that article of uh, t- 10 things maybe advanced home brewers should know. But I mean, yeah. cer- certainly, the, you know, t- t- tubing is so essential to, to, to brewing. And the two basic types of tubing that we use um, outside of draft systems are PVC tubing, which is like just a standard tubing you get in a beginner homebrew kit, and then silicone tubing. And then, you know, you've got like Ultra Berry and other types of more advanced tubings that are used for, for draft lines and, and kegerators and keysers by certain people. Um, and the thing about tubing is, you're right, I mean, the plastic can be porous, but the other thing is, like, you can't exactly shove a brush down there to clean it. And when you do, Again, as you mentioned, you run the risk of scratching it, which is like a, another cardinal sin, right? And yep, you know the thing about draft tubing is in, in properly maintained draft systems, um, you know, on a fairly frequent rotational basis, home brewers or, or or bars will run something like a caustic substance, like BLC beer line cleaner, or at least like PBW. It, on a recirculating basis. And so you get a combination of like ke- chemical removal of organic deposits and inorganic deposits, as well as this the erosion effect, which is really important. You know, I mean, if you go to a bar, they don't just like kind of pump the solution through once um, when, when these professional line cleaners are coming in. They'll use a pump and they'll recirculate that. Yep. 
and b- because it's necessary. But we don't do that with the tubing that we use for transfers, you know, whether it's from the kettle to the fermenter or from the fermenter to the bottling bucket, bottling bucket to bottles or kegs. And that's really a problem because if you take an honest look at your tubing, you start seeing like, oh, yeah, it's a little discolored. And yeah, maybe there's like a little hot material in there or I can sort of see that it's got a film in there. And once you see that, you know, again, you know, as all the cleaning companies tell us, like Five Star and, and Na- National Chemical, you can't sanitize it anymore. It's like that that is contaminated and you're running a risk there. And yeah, if, yeah, there, I mean, if to, there's any material behind, sanitation is not going to work at all. Right. You got to have right. a, a pristine, clean surface to basically be able to sanitize it. Absolutely. And these biofilms develop. And yep. So it's, it's, it's a tough thing. And you're right. Like, I mean, probably there's no more frugal hobby than home brewing. It's like we, we're just, you know, I mean, the masters at, at squeezing a penny. And unfortunately, that plays out in not replacing your tubing frequently enough. But, you know, if you look at it, like, for example, um, now this is 3 16th inch tubing. So you'd use that for a draft line. I got 100 feet of it for $9. And so, you know, be love and look out for deals. And... Once you get a big roll of it, um, just be generous with it. And, you know, every few brews, just just toss what you've got or use it for something where it doesn't matter and then cut yourself off a new piece and replace it. And, you know, typically we're only using three or four feet at a time anyway, right? Yep. Um, yeah, I, I, I personally use a, a ball valve with a, a, a small, a, a three-foot piece of silicone tubing that goes right into my fermenter. That's probably the majority of the plastic tubing I use on any given brew day, right? Other than draft lines that I use as far as uh, transferring, and I replace that often, very, very often because it's something where I, I know I can't clean it. They're also really narrow, and so I probably... I would say every three or four batches of beer replace that tubing often. That's just part of my process. Yeah, I mean, it's a cost of doing business. And if, if you're aware of that and build that into your process, then you're also going to be aware to look for deals on tubing. And, you know, heck, I've got an entire shelf, which is just nothing but, but tubing I've been hoarding because I want to replace it frequently. And, yeah. you know, um, people that are using silicone tubing, you've got a little bit more leeway because, you know, as a rubber type tubing, um, which is, you know, very heat resistant. Um, there's a lot, much more ability to to clean that, to boil it, make sure the hot boiling water gets in there, and make sure that it's really clean. Um, so, you get a bit more life out of it. But silicone tubing's also got some disadvantages because unless it's braided or reinforced, it tends to kind of collapse when when um, you're using it with hot materials, right? Yep. And it also, uh, it's more expensive. It, it, it is yeah. actually, yeah. In comparison to like, uh, the standard, uh, you know, vinyl tubing that you would see for, you know, like that you see what would come with your standard, you know, auto siphon or something like that is the, the those tubings are very, very inexpensive. You, like you said, you get a whole hundred foot roll for $9. Whereas uh silicone tubing could be you know, a couple to three or four dollars a foot, right? So, uh, depending on where you're getting it, so it, yeah, it, and, it, and it does have a little bit more of investment as well. No, for sure. And you know, e- even when you're buying the like the standard auto siphon tubing's three eighths inch, um, you know, maybe you can get twenty five or fifty feet for ten bucks. 
of that that polyvinyl chloride or PVC tubing, which that standard tubing that we use. Um, I mean, even then, when, when you're using three or four foot lengths of it, I mean, you're talking about you know pe- pennies, you know, less than a dollar, and you know it, it doesn't add up that much when you spread that across a few batches. Um, no, it doesn't. I mean, what's interesting? I mean, think yeah. about I mean, what do people spend on yeast, right? I mean, uh, people spend ten dollars on a pack of yeast all the time, right? Yeah, right. Twelve ninety nine at my local homebrew shop. So no, for sure. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting yeah. too because when we talk about this, um, it kind of plays into another controversial topic, which I'm just going to kind of allude to, which is the idea of one step, which is, um, you know, that hey, I can just use one chemical to solve all of my cleaning and sanitation problems. Um, and w- when you had Five Star on, I mean, the answer is basically it's like, nope. <laughs> there is no product which can both clean and sanitize. And um, I-, I think that's borne out by the fact that even though the maker of One Step, which is Logic Inc., um, tries to kind of play it off like it can, they've also come out with a sanitizer. Um, a very good sanitizer, in fact, that's uh, probably competitor star sand, but doesn't foam. And um, it's highly effective. And like, why would they need to do that if they have one product which solves it? And, you know, I, I got a lot of people say, well, I've used it and it works. Or the homebrew shop said I can use it and it works. And I think I think that's true to some extent. And um, so there's a an interview with Merle Landman of National Chemical. They're the makers of um, like BTF IOTA 4 and a lot of chemicals that that commercial and home breweries use. And, you know, he's basically saying, listen, if the surface can be perfectly pristine, like if you had like a perfect mirror surface, then yeah, cleaning alone basically is sanitizing because it just removes all of the all of the um, microbes. But unfortunately, we don't really deal with those sort of ideal surfaces in a in a real brewery. Right. Um, some people cite to especially Josh in a home Weikert, brewery. Yeah, especially home brewery, and so some people cite to Josh Weikert, and like, yeah, he's he's famous as uh, you know a prolific author on home brewing, and um, he's won a ton of medals, and writes the make make your best uh, insert your beer um, style series at uh, Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and he said, hey, I just use one step, and I've been using it for years, and look at all my medals, but what what um, he'll tell you if you dig into it is. Yeah, but he replaces plastic like every, every few batches. He uses only plastic gear and replaces it ultra frequently. And yep. so that's why it works, because it's, as Merle Landman said, if the surface is pristine to begin with, then I guess it could work. Yep. And then uh, that moves right into kind of another topic when we talk about this is assuming more is better versus, uh, you know, and, and this could be kind of with everything, right? Time, temperature, uh, concentration of cleaning findings. Uh, it, there, there's tends to be like, I, I love to use star sand as an example. There's a prescribed amount of, of star sand to a five gallon batch and of star sand. And to me, it's like, you want to be ultra accurate with that because you're dealing a with some hot, harsh chemicals, but then B it's not going to sanitize any better if you use more. Right. And so uh, that that's one example. But you could use assuming more is better on all of these things. And, and a lot of people do that all the time. Right. Yeah, I mean, for sure. It kind of reminds me of. Uh, so there's there's a famous American sitcom tool time with Tim Taylor 
and uh, he, he was like a home improvement host. And, uh, you know, b- basically everything he did, he always wanted more power, right? Which is like the American way. And yep. uh, more yeah. hops, more hops. We need more hops. <laughs> we need more hops and like, more is better. And yeah, unfortunately, that, that's not the true and uh, a, a true thing. And again, I, I keep citing back to that five star interview you did just because it was so amazing. And, um, and I forgot the name of your guest, but uh, I mean, she was saying like time, temperature, and concentration are super important when it comes to cleaning and sanitizing chemicals because yep. they figured out the right amount. And look, believe me, if, if they could make more money, if they could make another buck by telling you to use more, they would. Um, Absolutely. But, yeah. When you increase the concentration, paradoxically, that cleaning chemical or that sanitizer becomes less effective. Yep. Because you're you're basically throwing more at the same microbes, right? Essentially. Yeah. And it's it's not going to do any. It's, it's it is scientifically figured out. Hey, this is the amount to kill these microbes. It's the right pH, right? Uh, and and to call that out, that was Emily Lovato who we interviewed on the show, and she was she was a great guest, and and so uh, you know really appreciate her for taking the time to kind of talk to us about good cleaning practices. So if that's something you want to learn about, go listen to that episode. It was a great one. Um, We also had uh, Jamie Carmichael on the show talking about finings uh, a few episodes back. And, you know, he talked about many different types of findings, but one of the things that when it comes to findings and, and even brewlosophy has done this where they've said, Hey, does adding more gelatin make your beer clearer? And it doesn't, right? It's, it's once you get the right amount, it make it makes your beer clearer and findings kind of work that way and and if you overdo it they can actually make your beer not clearer they actually make it cloudier right it can have right, a, yeah. a detrimental effect no for sure and, and J- Jamie and I are are old old uh, internet friends like we, I think nowadays we all have friends that we've never met in person but feel like we know because we talk all the time online um and uh so he, he he's just a really smart cookie um, former professional brewer, and n- now he works on the technical side, um, helping breweries. And he he posts um, whenever people doubt him, he he posts pictures. And so, um, what commercial brewers would do is they'll actually do assays and say, okay, this is our beer, this is our flagship beer, this is our flagship pilsner, let's say, and it's the same recipe every time, subject to just kind of some natural variations from batch to batch. And so, how much finding do we need for this beer? And so they'll pull samples and try different amounts of finding and figure out, listen, this is the level which gives us the clearest result. And once they go past that, yeah, it, it, beer goes from like cloudy to clear to cloudy again. And yep. see that picture that, uh, that Jamie will post now and again online is just like the greatest visual indicator to me of a concept that otherwise people just won't believe, you know, because they're thinking, exactly. well, you know, right. If, 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 uh, Half a teaspoon in a five-gallon batch works in two days, and one teaspoon should work in a day. And if I use two teaspoons, then I'm going to be able to, like, you know, it, it'll be almost clear, translucent, yeah. transparent, right? <laughs> well, and it's it, we all think that way, right? Hey, more is going to be better, and, you know, it's a good thing. Let's just give it more. But to me, it's like uh, a lot of these things are like think of it in the analogy of, of medicine, right? You can overdose on medicine. You can overdose on findings. You can overdose on chemicals that you're using for cleaning. You can overdose on time, right? Uh, it, it's it, there. There's a beer is made. There's a reason why 
most beers are made on a based on a 60 minute boil because you know it, it, it's it's about control and repeat repeatability and when you just add more you've now thrown an entire variable into it right that that is an unknown and yeah and that's that's one of the factors that people don't think about right I think so. And I think you know, it really applies almost across the board. I mean, another another one that I see a lot is people have a beer and like, oh, you know what? This is a great five and a half percent beer. I want it to be an eight and a half percent beer. It's like, OK, I'll, I'll just throw more ingredients at it, more of the same ingredients, and, and I'll have the exact same beer. But now it's going to be eight and a half percent or 12 percent. And it doesn't work that way. Right. <laughs> there, no, there's, uh, no you, it's, you, there's there's an entire style of building a beer to get to an eight percent so that it doesn't taste like it's a big booze bomb right <laughs> yeah or a big malt bomb or whatever and that's that's yeah exactly yeah. right there's a there's a you know a, a right amount for things and a right way to go about it if you um i suppose if you want to make a, a beer bigger i i mean you could try to make an eight percent pilsner but in all reality um there that you know there, there there are methods to get there but it is definitely not just throw more ingredients at it, right? Yeah, and then, then you end up with like Santa Claus or something, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and and then I think this is kind of one of our uh, we're we're kind of getting towards the end because we we ended up like I, I as I'm looking at this kind of list here, it's like there's a lot of cleaning here, which is great because cleaning. Whenever anybody asks me, hey, I want to get into home brewing, the first thing I say to them is, uh, do you like to clean? Because if you don't like to clean, home brewing is not for you. But that said, uh, using PBW or any type of percarbonate uh, style of uh, cleansers and using them on a PET fermenter um, and also using brushes on them as well. Um, love to talk about you know what, what these types of cleaners do to PET style fermenters. Yeah, I mean, so th this is something... Um, it's surprising that not a lot of people know this. And so um, <clears throat> percarbonate-based cleaning solutions are, I mentioned this earlier, they're, they're PBW, one-step, um, OxyClean are probably the three most common, EasyClean, and um, all the ones from uh, National Semi, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Na National Chemical, um, craft, the Kraftmeister ones, ABW and OBW. Yep. Those are all, yep. those are all um, they all use sodium percarbonate or um, there are kind of some other names for that chemical a as the cleaner. That's a, a an alkaline caustic cleaner, and, th they're, and they have a really know, high pH, really high. Like people don't, re I don't think, realize that those those you're shooting like pH eleven on some of these things. Well, yeah, I mean, so so you've got you know, of course, you've got um, what they call caustic sodium hydroxide or lye, which is what the professional brewers um, most most frequently use. But, you know, and, and we're using these these um, kind of safer chemicals. And, you know, effectively, this is just laundry detergent, you know. Yeah. Um, they've got other products in there, sequestrants, builders, um, buffers, to help them do their job better. They're kind of tailored to the soils you get in a brewery as opposed to on your T-shirt. But generally speaking, you know, we know from the fact that OxyClean works really well that, that these are all... Um, more or less variants of laundry detergents. And um, I, I think they're highly effective. They're great. Uh, every brewery chemical maker sells at least one of these products. But what you can't do is use them on pet plastic. And so what I'm talking about is your better bottles, your, um, your uh, for monsters. vintage. Yeah, for monsters, vintage shop carboys are probably the three most popular ones. 
Also, yep. um, all those Australian ones. Um, I don't know the names of any of them, but uh, you know, uh, the Firmzilla. The, the Firmzilla. No. Yeah, I think it's a Firmzilla. And, it's the it's the PET one that people use for like pressure brewing. That one. Yeah. Yep. And and there's yep. another one now too that's like kind of low and round, I think, but. Um, all those will be severely damaged over time by exposure to percarbonate solutions. And what happens is there's this um, reaction called caustic stress corrosion, which happens. And um, th- there's a neat article that Better Bottle has put out on their out on their website that shows effect of it. What you end up happen what ends up happening is at the points where the plastic bends, um, those are weak points, and those will actually um, kind of invisibly start failing. And then one day you've got a carboy full of wort and you put it down on your bench because you're going to pitch some yeast and it just cracks and fails right at the corner there. And that's what's going to happen. And um, whenever you use it, you're just kind of basically eroding away and causing this corrosion at these corners. So that, that's bad enough. Um, in particular, if you're, if you're prone to or want to put your your chemical in first so like hey, let me put in a scoop of pbw then i'll put the water in that's the worst thing you can do because that is super concentrated right down at the bottom in the worst place and so i'll talk i'll talk in a minute about what you could do to avoid that but the other thing which is this is doing is you're kind of losing the benefits of of pet plastic and um, an, another way to identify the pet plastic is if you look at the recycling symbol it'll be a number one at least in in north america the beauty of these pet fermenters is that they're hydrophobic, meaning that the plastic um, repels water, which means they're also going to repel water-based soils. And so they're very easy to clean and um, are not going to be very reactive to your beer. But the second you start putting percarbonate solutions in there, you're kind of pitting and damaging the surface of it. And you've gone from having this super smooth water-repellent surface to something which isn't functioning as well anymore so what Um, are the what what are some of the you know obviously pbw and and oxyclean are probably the most common cleaners i see out there what would you recommend cleaning the pet with if you were gonna you know try to get it clean before you sanitize it yeah i mean so so what's crazy is water alone is often enough if you've got a fermenter that you haven't already damaged um, it's because of the hydrophobic nature. You filled up with some warm, not hot water. You want to keep it below about 140 degrees and kind of swish it around a bit. Um, what I like to do is, and, and these are tricks I'm pulling right out of the Better Bottle playbook, is dump out the water until I've just got a little bit of water in there, like maybe half a pint glass, third of a pint glass, throw a washcloth in there. And these things are so light. I mean, you can spin it around your head. I mean, you can imagine trying to do that with the glass carboy. And I'll, yeah. I'll put a solid bung on there, and I'll just kind of swirl that washcloth around in a circle. And it kind of takes um, – once you learn the rhythm, it's pretty easy. And it just takes it all off. I mean, there's really not much to it. If, if you want to take a more passive approach to it, um, I, I found it to be effective. And, again, this is something I got out, got out of the Better Ball playbook to use enzyme-based cleaners like seventh generation, either their laundry soap or the dishwashing liquid. Um, and, and that would just kind of dissolve the soil right away. And then you kind of give it a rinse and you're good to go. Nice. 
Uh, um, I, I found that just like a really soft sponge works really well on them. You don't because obviously I when I've had one, I've had a firmzilla that I could get my arm all the way in there. So it was really easy to clean. And uh, yeah, I would just use water and a really soft sponge to just kind of get the 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 croissin off. And and I could get it very, very clean quite easily without a lot of chemicals. And then, of course, sanit- sanitizing it once it was a clean surface, it worked great. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you get your hand in there, that, that's always the best. You know, I, I've always found that uh, that just a so- soft kitchen sponge and my and uh, little elbow grease does goes a long way. You know. Yeah, but no, no scratchy side, guys. No scratchy. Oh side God, side. yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, this is a new one to me because, and I saw this on your list, and I was like, I actually don't do this, so. Uh, this is one I am completely guilty of, which is basically storing equipment with ball valves completely open or completely closed. They should be three fourths open. And I, I'd love to hear some background on this and, and where you've heard this and, and why you think we should do it this way. Oh, my God. I mean, th- this is like the greatest because I mean, it just goes to show you that no matter how much you think you've learned in home brewing, there's always something new to learn. And I mean, you could be learning stuff daily. Um, I, I got this one. So my, my homebrew club, which is the awesome Northeast Brewers Alliance in Minneapolis, um, we wanted to put together a tips video during the pandemic summer of 2020. And so I solicited some videos, gathered them together. And this is a tip that was sub- uh, submitted by Matt Johnson. Um, he, he's a great brewer, um, former recipe designer for Northern Brewer, and a guy who... Like he wins homebrew competitions at will when he wants to, and has really turned his attention to sour beer lately um, and barrel stuff. But um, he said, "Yeah, you should you should store your your valve three quarters open, meaning it's like it's it's not fully closed, which would be ninety degrees. It's not fully open, which would be kind of straight pointing in line with the valve, or zero degrees. It should be at a forty five degree angle." And I was like, well, "What difference does it make?" I mean. It's crazy. And he explained, look, if you, if you ever take apart a ball valve and look at it, if it's fully open or if it's fully closed, the, the, the way that the ball works and the seat um, where, where it interacts with the gaskets, it will completely seal off that chamber. And so you got stuff which is sealed off and unable to dry out because it's inside that whole ball valve apparatus but outside of the ball itself. And so it's like like in this in-between layer where it's in its own chamber and it will never dry out and ends up just being a place where, you know, that that damp, moist location. I mean, you're going to get mold, mildew, microbes maybe. It just gross, doesn't seem like a good idea. Gross beer that's three months old because you haven't brewed and you just like turn it and just insert that right into your wart. I mean, that's essentially... It's like a little mini chamber of like, gross. Yeah, I mean it's 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 it's, it's crazy. And so like you know t- t- take take Matt's word for it or our word for it. Or if you don't, then take apart your ball valve sometime and try try rotating and see how that's true. That it's it's really only when you're kind of halfway between open and closed that you can leave that chamber open so it can dry out. Um, and so yeah, I, I thought that was a great tip and c- certainly something that this quote advanced unquote brewer didn't know yeah me I, I will tell you that that is something i didn't know and and why it stood out to me right off the bat oh you know a lot of this other stuff i have heard that you know pbw and pet you know is a, is a no-no and 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 
and have heard that over the years, right? Uh, more is better. Like, like that, that is something I've definitely known, but yeah, this one is, was one that was completely new to me. Uh, I, I love this next one because I am a hundred percent in agreement with this one is that underestimating extract beer. I, I am a big fan of, I, I have a couple of guys in my personal homebrew club, the old town mash paddlers that do full extract and partial mash extract beers. And I can tell you that these beers stand up to some of the best beers in my club. And so I, if you could take a beer and not, and do this blind, right. And not know that it was extract up front and don't get that in your head and taste the beer in an objective manner, you will find that there are people out there that make extract beers that are as good or just as good as any of the all grain versions. And so I, I love to call that out and say that, you know, don't underestimate an extract beer. It will blow your mind. And so um, that's my personal experience with it. I'd love to hear yours as well, Gina. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree. And this is one of those things that, you know, so when you get onto homebrew forums or talk to homebrewers, um, homebrewers are always talking about, like, I, I want to level up. I want to, you know, I want to move to the next level. I want to... You know, progress my brewing, and they're always thinking like, well, the way to do that is, well, I need I need to move from extract beer to all grain. I need to be on a three vessel system, you know, where, where I'm fly sparging, and uh, you know, maybe it's like a five thousand dollar, you know, horizontal three tier, you know, a th- uh, single tier system or something. And I mean, that's not true. That you know, yeah, extract beer can be horrible, but the reason is because you know you've got these beers in the hands of people who've never brewed before, right? Or yeah. they brewed five batches. And that's the extract beer you normally taste. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it's not great, but, you know, has, has anyone ever knitted a sweater that was just, like, you know, uh, amazing and, and uh, you know, gracing the runways of Milan? No, I mean, it, ta- it takes a while to, to kind of learn and, and uh, perfect your craft. And that's so much of the extract beer we see is... Um, b- beer made by people who don't even have the basics down, and then yeah. you know the other the other syndrome or problem we have is extract, which just isn't great. And you know, look, you can't make good beer if you don't have good ingredients. I, I think that's something that almost anyone you know would agree with. It's it's incontroversial. You know, it's not not controversial at all. And getting good extract can be tough because you know. It doesn't last that long. It tends to undergo Maillard reactions and um, degrade in color, flavor. It gets that caramelly flavor, darkens, um, and generally doesn't uh, taste good if it's not yeah, fresh. You have, a, you, have a, you have a home brew shop that has old ingredients and they're selling you old extract. You're never going to make good beer from that old extract. Yeah, and you know, they, sometimes some homebrew shops just don't have the turnover, you know. And yeah. I mean, may, unfortunately, maybe it's true that there's only a few suppliers, you know, m- maybe a dozen or so in this country, at least online, that are getting that sort of turnover that they need to just serve you up the the absolute freshest extract, you know. Um, yeah, and and I'm sure I'll, there's you I'll, know I'll, really good high. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was gonna say I I'll use an example when I was first starting out home brewing and I was doing extract beers. I had uh, I bought a kit from Northern Brewer, and obviously we know Northern Brewer is probably selling enough stuff to get through their ingredients quite quickly. There, we're, we're we're talking about a homebrew shop that's probably selling at, at a very high level, and 
And I will tell you that the extract that I got from them was of really high quality and made great beer. And, and you could see it. It, it, it looked, it visually looked like it was supposed to, right? You're going for a light beer. The extract itself, though darker because it's concentrated, was still lighter than maybe other lighter extracts that I had seen from other homebrew shops that maybe didn't go through it as quickly. So it, it is visually something you can see right up front. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, hey, look, I, and I think that's great. And, and in fact, I, I live um, in the shadow of uh, their their national warehouse, and so I, I and I've had the the privilege of having toured their facilities and seeing the sort of um, you know really almost freakish attention they've got to to freshness and everything, which is really nice. But you don't you don't need to go see that. You can just buy your own extract and wait three months to brew with it and see what the difference is. Yeah, and which unfortunately, exactly. But, you know, look, I mean, we we could we could turn a whole show or two into talking about how to make a great extract beer, but I think, you know, I mean, what I think is that it's got advantages. You know, in terms of time, if you just want to knock out a batch, I think that there's some really cool new techniques with extract that a lot of people or advanced brewers haven't tried yet. Um, in, including some of these hop test beers. I mean, you're literally like bringing your water to a boil, adding extract, doing a 30-minute hop steep or hop stand, and then you chill and start fermenting. And think about how much active time is involved there. And what you end up with is just an amazing American pale ale or kind of a similar hoppy beer. And then you can you yep. can change that to say, you know what, I'd rather make a bitter. I'd rather make a, a stout, a brown ale, by changing your steeping grains, the type of hops you use, and some of these variables with the same amount of active time, which is yeah. very little, you, you, you can bust out on you know a Tuesday night after your kids have gone to bed a really great beer that's going to be something you can put into bottles or a keg and enjoy drinking. Um, yeah, and it's not going to take you five hours to knock it out. You could do it in yeah. a couple Right. Right. And, and so um, what, what's neat is if, if you can put extract back in the hands of people who now you've become an advanced brewer, you've learned the techniques, you've cleaning and sanitation, how to manage yeast, how to evaluate beer and kind of use that feedback to improve your, your um, recipes and brewing, um, how to transfer beer without um, introducing contamination or, or um, oxygen all those good things and how to manage your fermentation and control it. So it pr progresses at a good pace and making your yeast healthy and happy. Once you've managed that, like why not go back and try an extract beer and say, you know what, what happens if I direct and apply those techniques to an extract beer? I'll bet you it'll yeah. be a lot better than that first extract beer you made when you started on the hobby. Yeah. I, I, I made an, I made an extract batch in 2020. It was a gluten-free extract batch, but it was a good beer. I even brought it to the homebrew club and they were like, Hey, this IPA is really good. And I was like, Oh really? It's gluten-free. It has, is a uh, sorghum extract in it. <laughs> and it was, and it was good because like, like you just said, uh, I, I, I tend to have decent practices. I, I don't ever walk, walk around saying I'm the best homebrewer in the world. I'm far from that, but I will, I will say that I have, you know, generally good practices when it comes to things like fermentation, temperature control and process. And so therefore I'll end up, if I do make an extract beer, I, I do feel like, whoa, this was so easy because it's been so long since I've done one. And when I do so, I end up with a, a, an enjoyable beer. Also, I have, you know, I have a guy in my homebrew club 
that has he's only brewed extract beer for 20 years. I would think in 20 years he's figured out how to ferment properly, right? And so in the end, he and he he, he tends to generally make British styles that that's kind of his thing. But you know what? Whenever he and and every time he pulls out a recipe, it's on a three by five card handwritten out, right? This is we're talking old <laughs> school here. But the guy makes great beer. And and I will every time I taste his beer, I always go, Is this extract? And he's always like, Yeah, it has this, and I steeped it with this. And I'm always like blown away that his beers are extract because I've you've taken extract and put it into somebody who knows and has a process to make good beer. Don't over, don't over underestimate it. Like it, it, it can, great beer can come out of extract and people have won gold medals with extract beers. It does happen. No, no, for sure. I mean, I think, I think it just comes down to, you know, fr- fresh ingredients, um, understanding the styles that extract is well suited for and applying all these, these, um, techniques that you learn through, through um, knowledge and, and experience and practice, and you can you can make a great, a great extract beer of any st- you know any, any style that's suitable. Really, I mean, so so I've got a funny story. So um, th- there's a time, and and I'm not I guess I'm not proud of this, but so um, I, I used to make some extract beers, and I would take them and have people taste them and uh, ask them what they thought about it, and like you kind of get your comments like, oh yeah, maybe I've got a bit of astringency, and you know. I like that. Maybe the hop character needs to be a little bit more uh, pronounced and you're getting some feedback. And then I tell them, um, yeah, this is an extract beer because their assumption is, hey, Ch- Ch- Chino's a all grain brewer. He's making all grain beer. Um, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do get a bit of extract twang, you know. And immediately you tell someone that there's an extract beer and it's like the extract twang, twang is there. It's like, no, it wasn't there before, you know. Um, no, it wasn't. It's it, it, it's in your <laughs> mind, and so um, don't, don't be scared away by that. I, th- I think you know if, if people try it, they'll be really pleased and pleasantly surprised. Yeah, well, and and since we're talking about extract, and el- extract has maltose in it, this is my transition. What do you think? Oh, of nice, it? Segue. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue. Nice segue. Super and, smooth. Uh, totally not, but. Pitching wine yeast when your fermentation stalls. And I, I've heard this. I've never actually been recommended to me personally. I've only had a few fermentations ever stall on me. And when they have, I just pitched a little bit more of the exact same yeast that I put in it originally. Just, you know, get some fresh stuff in there. And that's worked out fine for me. Or even just shaking it actually has worked out well for me. I, I Maybe I've just been lucky. But I have actually heard people say this. And I've never actually done it, but it's a uh, pitch some champagne yeast. It's a beast, right? Like, like uh, let's talk about yeah. it. Like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a t- terrible idea. I mean, really. And um, I've got this on the list of things advanced brewers should know because qu- quite often it's local homebrew store employees who are giving this advice to, and which which just boggles my mind because they should know better. And really, every, everyone should know better, you know? You know um, who you are. You know who you are. <laughs> we're calling you out here. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, look, look, um, champagne yeast, yeah, it's it's a beast for what it does, which is it ferments grape juice, grape must, which is comprised of all simple sugars really well under high pressure, um, high CO2, um, high acidity, 
and high ABV conditions. It, it, it'll just plow through that stuff. But that's not what wort is. I mean, wort, wort is not grape bust. And you look at your standard all malt wort, and yeah, about 15 to 18% of it is simple sugars. But, you know, f- 45 to 50% almost is maltose. And another 12 to 15% is maltotriose, which, which even beer yeast have a problem fermenting, depending on the strain. And you start realizing this is a really bad idea because all that maltose, all that maltotriose will not be touched by your wine yeast or champagne yeast. And, you know, I, I hear this when people's fermentations are stuck. I hear it when like, oh, you know, I want to get to 18%. So I'm going to pitch some champagne yeast. It's like, no, dude, that's not going to work. And, and it um, doesn't happen, right? Uh, yeah. And, and, it, and it doesn't happen. Now, there's a couple exceptions, which I'll talk about. But uh, be, before I get there, um, so, so you've got this situation. But th- the problem compounds itself because the other thing most people don't realize is unlike brewer's yeast, beer yeast, they're wine yeasts that are killers. Killers, I'm literally, um, they're called killer strains. And I, th- I think at this point they've identified three different toxins. And so um, wine yeast are classified as killer, um, susceptible, or neutral, okay? Meaning that e- either they're out there um, putting out this toxin, this poison, to kill other yeast um, because they don't want the competition, they are susceptible, meaning they don't put out this poison, but they're going to get killed. Or they're kind of neutral, which is they're kind of immune to it, but they're also not out there poisoning other yeasts that are competing with them. You know, it's like a Game of Thrones sort of situation, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and all and- beer yeast are susceptible, you know? And so they're, they're like the, the weaklings here who are going to get killed. And so now what are you going to do is like you, you pitch your champagne yeast. It didn't work. You've got this big Russian Imperial Stout, which is super sweet. And now you've destroyed all of your options. You've got no options left because any other yeast you pitch in there is going to get killed by the champagne yeast. It's just no going to outcompete it and still not ferment all the maltose that's in there. Yeah, so it can't. I mean, and, and that's right. You're stuck because, you know, at the end of the day, when your fermentation stalled, all the simple sugar is gone. I mean, what's left is the stuff that's difficult to chew through, even for the brewer's oh, yeast. And, this, one, and, this one subject alone could be in its own article. Like, oh, there, of course. there's so much in there. <laughs> so, so it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because so, so I was going to talk about a couple exceptions. Okay. So w- one exception to this is the wine strain um, named K1V1116. The K stands for killer. So it is a killer yeast. Um, this is, this has got to be your last option because there's no options after that. But um, when we talk about a whole show, there was a show, this, this famous show on the Brewing Network with Shea Comfort, who... Um, I don't know if he's alive anymore, but uh, um, he, he, he talks about, you know, basically to brewers making wine and as well as yeasts, wine yeast that are appropriate in beer. And he highlighted K1V 1116 as the one strain that he, as, as this formidable wine yeast expert knows, is actually capable of fermenting maltose. And in fact... Um, not only that, but that's the yeast that winemakers will pitch when they have a stalled fermentation and in, in, uh, when they're making a wine is that that's one of the go to yeast to say, you know what, I'm stuck. I've got to use uh, 1116. Huh. So, I, yeah, I may, may, maybe maybe we need to do a little experiment and uh, try that one out and see see what happens. I, I bet it ends up being bone dry, though. 
bone. Well, no, drag. no. So surprisingly, surprisingly, so it doesn't. And so I actually did that. I brought this to a uh, a club meeting um, where I, I split a six gallon batch of um, of uh, caribou slobber, you know, which is the the famous moustrel clone. And you know, for a while, that was like the rite of passage. Everybody of a certain era has brewed caribou slobber. Um, wonderful American brown ale. Um, split it two ways. I did half of it with, if I remember correctly, SO4 and the other half with 1116. And um, they kind of finished at similar gravities. You know, SO4 is not exactly a super high attenuating yeast, but, you know, it, it does fairly well. It does over 75% typically. Yep. Um, this is an all-grain wort. And uh, um, it was great. And surprisingly, I, I didn't expect this at all because there's no fruit in the beer, but the 1116 beer was uh actually kind of berry like so so, huh. so quite qu- quite fruity um almost like a wine like character i don't know if i was looking for it but um i'm not the only one who said that and and the people didn't know the variable until afterwards so i mean it was a, it was a good beer so I, th- I think it's also a legitimate um option if you just want to use a wine yeast and um and look and, and i don't mean to say that you can't use a wine yeast just to do normal beer fermentation there there are um, like like Michael Tonsmeyer, the mad fermentationist, has multiple blog posts about using wine yeast to get different character in beer. But you just have to be like really kind of knowledgeable and 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 select carefully when you want to do that. Um, yeah. So so that's that's but one exception. But champagne yeast to just get it through a stalled fermentation is probably not the right solution. That, that that's not going to work. That's yeah, not going to work. That's and, not gonna and, work. And, and look, and sometimes people will have it work. And what's going on there is like almost certainly, undoubtedly, what's going on there is, hey, there's fermentation just picked up again with with the normal beer yeast. And it just happened to kind of coincide when you pitch just a little bit of champagne yeast. Um, yeah. And, you know, my, my number s- one way of getting through a stuck fermentation is to actually rouse the yeast. And it usually comes back. Right. Is that that's been my solution and it's worked for me to get a, a stuck fermentation. Though I will say I've only had three stuck fermentations the whole time. I just have been lucky and have had very, very few. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in all these years of brewing, I, I'm probably like within a handful, like maybe a handful too. And that that's what I've done too. It's like, you know, make sure the beer is warm and then, you know, rouse, rouse it twice a day by rocking the fermenter for five days, wait another two days, check the gravity again. And usually it's finished by then. Yep. It, it, yeah. it, that tends to be the better way of getting it done. And one time I did have one that stalled out because I used a yeast packet that had sat in my car and I think I just had overheated it and killed it. And then I went back and repitched another package of the same yeast and then the whole beer turned out great. So, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, but I mean, was, it's an interesting topic. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's, you know, you repitch and there worked out fine. Obviously, you know, we weren't here to talk about stalled fermentations, but rather champagne yeast. But you know, and that's yeah, another totally. another whole show in itself. But you know, oh, stalled fermentations could be a whole show as well. Uh, yeah, there's just so much to talk about. But there is. Oh, it's the, the best. It is. And since we're on the subject of yeast, uh, I, I love this one, and I, I I totally picked this one off the list, which was being too Catholic or too narrow with your yeast choices. Uh, no offense to Catholics, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> that said, is you know, I, I I see this a lot, and and I actually see this a lot e- even in my homebrew club, where there are a lot of people that you know are just like, hey, I only use SO5 for everything, right? 
Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's meant to be an English mild. Would you use it? SO5. Okay. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and, and to me, that's a beer that's got, you know, supposed to have some yeast character to it. Right. Uh, I think British styles tend to want to. Um, and so for me, that that's one thing I see a lot, but you go a little bit deeper than just talking about using one strain of yeast, because it's also just knowing the limitations of your yeast, right? And and if you have a go-to house strain, knowing when to use it and when not to, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And you know what? And before, and by the way, Catholics, um, we're, we're talking lowercase C Catholic here. So yeah, no, no, no offense. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I'm, let me see if I can kind of weave this in like smoothly because I, I promised on the last topic that I would give two exceptions. And um, so the other exception I was going to talk about was WLP 099, the um, White Labs High Gravity, I think it's called. And um, yep, it's uh, the origin. Is it? Uh, oh, good gosh. Um, Gales, Hales, Gale, no. Um, well, anyway, it's it, it's it's a famous like strong ale, uh, old ale from England. I can't remember the origin right now, but um, so, some of these kind of yeast genome studies have shown that that's a wine yeast, and I think that's a great example. You know, that um, p- people they're just using USO five. You know, they ha- haven't tried like the, the wonderful character you can get from a well attending yeast like WLP zero nine nine or um, Maybe the San Diego Super East. I don't remember the number right now. Um, uh, 092. I, 092. I do know that one. Yeah, 092. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. You know your numbers. I do. I do. Because I, I, mean, I, I am not super Catholic with my yeast. I use a lot of variety yeah. with what I'm brewing. Uh, and, and, but, but to me, I, I think yeast is such an essential agreement, ingredient that it, there's an entire world out there when it comes to different kinds of yeast and and i'm kind of a yeast nerd anyway and so don't get me wrong i love the convenience of so5 if i want to knock out a quick batch and don't have time to really think about it dry yeast is the way to go but even in my personal home brewing i have multiple dry yeast for multiple situations and i think that that's really the way to go versus just always have you know a huge bag of so5 or multiple packets of that and that's really the only yeast you use and i'm not here to knock so5 i love the yeast it's a great yeast it makes an amazing pale ale it makes an amazing if you need a clean yeast for a lot and it's very versatile um and it's got a wide temperature range it's a great yeast but i just i just don't think it should be used for every single beer you ever make in your brewery yeah i mean it's the most you know you you talk to yeast labs and things have changed a little bit with the hazies but if you you know up to a few years ago the number one selling yeast um to to american craft brewers was the chico strain you know whether it's uso5 or wlp001 y yeast 1968 that that's that was almost sixty percent of what they sold, and it's got a particular. I mean, it's very clean, but you can still kind of pick out the flavor of hey, this is a Chico beer, you know. And there are other strains out there. Um, it, it's kind yeah. of funny because we we were talking about this topic before we started recording, and I was focused more on on home brewers using too many strains, like never getting to learn a strain, and you were focused on well. Um, a lot of people just have one or two strains that they ever use. And I, th- I think both of those things that um, once you get to be an advanced home brewer, you can kind of fall into that trap and you don't want to do. Um, yep. I mean, t- I, t- to I, me, and I agree both sides of that is like if you if you never make multiple t- 
types of beer or multiple beers with the same yeast, how do you even know what the yeast actually did to your beer? Right. Um, it's, it's the, the, yeah, I, I agree with you on the other side of that as well, where it's like, you know, using a different yeast every single time and never getting to know what a yeast can and can't do is also important. And I think that, uh, I, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, I mean, there's there's some yeast too that like USO five. I mean, it's gonna turn out the same every time. You can ferment it at. I mean, you can take it down to. I, I fermented at fifty nine, you know, and I fermented at seventy five, and it's still the same beer. Like it, it just doesn't change. It's it's, and that's really what's good about it. But then you you can take another strain, um, and uh, like like my favorite fourteen sixty nine, which is one of my favorites, the Y yeast uh, West Yorkshire. And you're going to get extremely different yeast expression depending on whether you ferment it um, cool, whether you ferment it warm, open fermented or closed fermented, um, you know, high pitch rates, low pitch rates. And so it's really variable. And if you've taken a time, some time to use the yeast a few times um, in the same style or a few different styles under different conditions, like you really learn what that yeast can do and, you know, maybe what you can get out of a beer. And yeah. you're not you're not gonna learn that if it's like hey every every recipe I make is a completely different style and I'm I'm buying a new packet from the homebrew shop, um, which is a different yeast every time you know. Um, I mean you're never also gonna learn if you don't harvest that yeast what you can get out of subsequent passages of that yeast right like sometimes we'll say generations even though that's not probably technically accurate. Um, so, so I'll I'll call them. Passages, which is what some of the microbiologists call them, but you know, it's like I've already said three, four times. Like when you talk to commercial brewers, they'll say, "Well, um, Ch- Chico or, or, or whatever he says, like we, we don't. It's not great the first time, but by like the seventh time that we we've repitched it, it's really hitting its stride, and we can make a really great beer, right?" And then what they go and do is they like bake it at that generation, and then just grow it up from there every time, right? So it's you, you'll see that a lot where people like get it to the right generation. And then they'll just like, hey, I'll take a, I'll take a sample of that, and then build from there. <laughs> yeah, right. And then, or, or, it, it, like, then you're never, then you're never progressing past that, right? Yeah, for sure. Like I, I've got, I know a, um, and I'm sure many crap bridges, but I know a microbrewery near me where when they get to that point, it's like they, they've got like multiple yeast brinks, and they're like, okay, now we're just going to basically store up a bunch of this yeast, and so they're kind of dumping the cones into the yeast brinks, which is basically like a keg. Um, which which has a pressure relief valve made to store yeast, and then they put it in their cold box, you know, and like okay, yep. so now we've got like all these all these um, yeast brinks with this yeast we've harvested right at, at just the right time, and we can make multiple batches like right when it's hit a stride, and so you know, I, you know, so I, I'd like to see you know some of the home brewers who are like too narrow in their choices try some different strains, and like ultimately. Um, you know, you kind of have to make some choices because uh, there, there's a happy medium in there. You go yep. too wide and you're never going to get to learn a yeast. Um, you go too narrow and you're kind of missing out on the world, right? And maybe yeah. you're not making great beers of a style that that yeast isn't suited for. I mean, you're not going to make a great, you know, you can use Chico for American style, most American styles, and you can maybe make a Irish ale or maybe a Scottish ale, pseudo lager, but you're not going to make a good British ale. You're not going to be like a Belgian ale, obviously. 
Um, you're probably not even going to make a great German lager. SO5 for a Saison is just not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, can you imagine, like, you know, a, 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 a triple, right? Belgian Gold yeah. Strong. Was, I, I just, mean, to me, it's like I've used 3711 for, uh, which is the French Saison yeast. It, it's probably my favorite Saison yeast out there. I've used other Saison yeast and figured out what I like and don't like about them. And then I've landed on 3711 because I love the flavor. I love the lemon. I love uh, uh, the the aggressiveness of the fermentation. And of course, it's a non-diastatic yeast, so it gets way low. And so for me, that is just kind of my go-to yeast for Saisons. But I use it for that. Right. And then it's like if I'm going to make an American beer, I use I'll probably use SO5 or some variation of that. If I'm going to make a hazy IPA, you're going to get London three for me. Right. I do use a lot of the same yeast for those styles, but I don't I'm not stuck in one style either. Right. So, yeah. Um, but but yeah. but I, mean, I think that I think it's like a great, great um, place to to kind of draw an example. It's like, OK, so um, let's say really like Cezanne's. Right. And yep. um, hey, the French Cezanne yeast is, is a great strain. And um you know how well it ferments that that kind of lemon pepperiness the the yep. high high levels of glycerides it creates so you get that mouthfeel even though you've got like an ultra dry beer um yep. which which is great um but then you've got the dupont strain right which is which is the yep. the classic saison strain i mean it's it's amazing and they got blougies and people are like well i like blougies a bit better than the dupont strain but that's 37 24 and 37 26 i think if you're looking yep. at the y yeast um, numbers and then you've got uh, there's a blend of that you know people say well if you blend them you can actually get closer to what DuPont is like um, my, my favorite is Cezanne Steen's Monster from Mega which is actually through a proprietary process they've hybridized the yeast um, and so it, it's got characteristics of all those yeasts and um, a little bit less on the peppery spicy side um, nice fruity character dry it doesn't stall and you know so that that's after a lot of experimentation my go-to but if i hadn't done that experimentation i never would have known right if, if i was like i'm yeah. only going to use one strain and and quite frankly you know you, you, you'll laugh but one of the strains was in the running for it was t58 because <laughs> i i'm not laughing that's not a bad yeast yeah I've, but pe- people don't yeah. like it or, or like well they don't know that you know about it but it's a, it's another yeah, I, like, really widely used strain and actually makes a great um saison and makes pretty good belgian beers too you know yeah i've used so many and personally i've used a lot of different i've used a saison was a thing for me for a while right and uh i think it was for everybody especially you know uh 2013 14 saison was my jam and because it was that beer where i was like man i get this really crazy unique flavor but it's also really easy to make right it wasn't super complicated and i will say that for me i went through this entire wide array of different saison yeast but then it's like i just kind of fell back to one where i was like hey this is one i like and i wanted to brew a more consistent beer. And that's, that's what it comes down to. And I think this conversation specifically when it talks about like, you know, yeast choices is that it's more about like brewing consistent beer is probably the, the thing when it goes to being like a more advanced home brewer from a beginner, right? Hey, I want to be able to brew, you know, Hey, you made this really great brown ale. Cool. Now make it 10 times exactly the same. And most home brewers are going to struggle to do that. And that's the difference between a good and a great brewer. And so, um, you know, 
and at that point you're making this beer with this yeast every single time. And so that that's that's really where we're trying to get. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, and, and th- that that's a great point, and maybe one I I should have made. It's like it, it's just hard to get really good if you're like constantly just dabbling all the time, and yep. not, not and it's not just yeast, right? But I mean, I, th- I think yeast is probably the the greatest expression, if you'll allow the pun, of uh, <clears throat> of of um, what can go wrong in not being able to develop consistency. But it's like, oh, I'm going to try different beers, and I'm you know I'm going to make. Um, a Russian Imperial Stout, and I'm going to make a low, low ABV beer, and um, just, just not doing things that are kind of in the same zone over and over again really ends up being something that makes it difficult to become consistent because you don't have like good benchmarks to compare beers against. Yeah, it, um, one way I always tell people to do that is make a house beer and continually make that beer throughout the year. It's your house beer, and really get it nailed. And if you can nail a house beer that is consistent every time you make it and it's the same every time you make it, and then, you know, let's say you've got a, a, a kegerator with a couple other taps and then do the other styles on those other two taps, right? And just have that same beer as your house beer. That's a great way to, to really work on consistency as a process. Oh, God, I, I love that advice. And it reminds me of a, of a story. So, so the great Dave Miller, um, and he's written some homebrew books that people may have seen his name, but he was... Um, you know, one of the best homebrewers, one of the best teachers of homebrewing. And then he went and became a pro out in Nashville at, I think, Black Horse Brewing, maybe, and won a bunch of GABF medals, you know. So I'm obviously able to translate that to a professional level. So great all-around brewer. People would ask him, hey, I want a recipe. Give me a recipe so I can make a great beer. And he'd say, yeah, you want a recipe? Take eight pounds of malt, one ounce of hops, and make that over and over again until you can make it the same every time. Yep. And... Yeah, that that just I think hits the nail on the head of what you're what you're telling us, you know. Yep. And then I let, let's go to our last one of the day, which is is it, it, it's uh, it this is one that like you know obviously beer has alcohol in it, and 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 you know one of the cool things about beer, and this is my favorite way to transition into this conversation, is that beer, you know, is is a beverage that the reason beer has been in humanity for so long. And one of the reasons is obviously that beer is always been safe to drink at times when water wasn't safe to drink. Right. But beer does have a little bit of poison in it and that's alcohol. Right. And one of the things that we can fall into and be trapped at as home brewers is the fact that we, you know, is, is, is a constant over imbibing of our own, of our own work. And uh, I, over the years, you know, when I first started home brewing and the excitement of being able to make my home beer, my own beer, you know, I hit I hit my kegs a little hard when I first started kegging and learned quite quickly that, uh, you know, if I were to drink like this continually for 20 years, I'm not going to live for very long. And so uh, <laughs> you, you have to actually make a conscious effort, I think, personally. Uh, especially when you are making beer at, at, at some of the levels that we and our friends do uh, to be able to kind of, you know, maintain a certain level of, hey, yes, I make beer. Yes, I have beer in my house. But you know what? I, I also uh, I one thing I will I will point out if I make uh, three batches of beer, which is about 15 gallons of beer, 
that is probably going to last me anywhere from four to six months if I were drinking it all by myself, right? Um, I'm very conscious of the amount of alcohol that I try to drink. And the reason is, is that in the long term, if you drink alcohol uh, at, a, at a very... Uh, let's just say you're drinking it at a, at a, at a level, it, it, it can cause long-term damage and can be very detrimental to your health. And so one thing that I think that, you know, being a show that talks about drinking beer all the time that we don't really touch on enough. And especially as you get to be a more advanced home brewer is I think that the people that have been home brewing for 20 years all know that there's a certain point to where you just can't drink uh, 12% stouts and have four of them every day. Right. And so, uh, I guess that that's my kind of way of saying, you know, be just conscious of the amount that you drink and, and try to keep it at a healthy level. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting because we talked earlier about how people always want to level up. And one of the ways people level up is like, well, I need to move from five gallon batches to 10 gallon batches. And, you know, someone, you know, and, and you know, some of it could be my age and some of it could just be, you know, I, I've, in a different place in my life, but it, it that boggles my mind that you know unless you're like a fraternity or something, that you know wh- where does ten gallons of beer go, especially if you're brewing once or twice a month, um, and you're actually consuming that maybe one or two people. Um, again, we're we're not here to judge. It's like it's more that we care about our fellow brewers and we want everyone to feel. Um, to, to be healthy, right? And it, it makes me sad because when I see people who are like selling out their equipment, more often than not, it's like, yeah, sometimes people are selling their equipment because like, hey, I had a kid, and I haven't brewed in a while and I just want to make room and I want to get rid of it. But more often than not, it seems like, you know what, I've got health problems, um, I've um, dependency, something quite often brought on by their consumption, and that just makes me sad because, like, I want my homebrewing brothers and sisters to stay in the hobby with me. And it would have been nice if they'd been able to kind of dr- drink at a level that didn't lead to them having to leave the hobby. Um, I mean, what's interesting is, so as as more research is done, and again, this may change because, you know, medical news, um, you know, sometimes it has a tendency to change or flip-flop, Right. Um, but as, as of now, the feeling among the medical community, and this is pretty wide consensus, is there's no safe level of alcohol consumption, which is, you know, something we need to be mindful of. It's like, I'm not going to stop drinking the moderate amounts I drink because, quite frankly, I enjoy the taste of beer. And, you know, alcohol is, a, you know, something that makes you feel good and is a social lubricant is a good thing. But, you know, I also recognize that, you know, hey, I'm making a choice to do something which is not good for me, probably like not unlike eating bacon or, you know, eat, having an extra slice of pizza just because it makes me feel good. Um, another interesting well, on the thing. the other I side read, of it, if your diet was only bacon, you're not going to live for very long. And it's the same idea here, right? Right, exactly. Mo- moderation for, for something which is obviously a poison to us is the key. And, and hey, I'll... I'll I'll leave it with actually a really interesting thing I read in the last couple of days, um, which is so, so um, scientists have determined that the gene that allows us to consume alcohol probably originated out of East Asia because, you know, we're one of the few animals that can, that can consume alcohol. And like, and we do great with it, you know, I mean, we, we can drink massive amounts and be perfectly fine 
um, and our body actually metabolizes it and, and, and um, to some extent makes us feel good. So we want more of it. And, you know, there's probably a reason for that adaptation, which is, you know, the, maybe the ability to eat fruits that other animals can't eat or something. But what's also interesting is um, among East Asians, there is a, uh, a high degree of, um, of uh, I guess, allergy. Um, like certain East Asians have a gene that causes them to flush and have other bad reactions to alcohol. And so because the gene developed there first, the evolution's going a lot faster there or, or, or a lot more ahead, I guess, than the rest of the world. And so that may be where the human race is going in the long run, which would be a sad thing because, uh, you know, at this point, being able to consume alcohol is not an evolutionary advantageous adaptation, right? I, I don't need to eat rotten fruit anymore. True. True. So we don't. Anyway, so, and so yeah, so I, I but, guess I'd but say. We, we could sure make a lot of uh, batches of rotten fruit, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, 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 we can we can sure make a lot out of it. So, I mean, I guess the w- way I'd put it is, you know, um, be, be mindful of what it is, um, enjoy the hobby to the fullest and uh, try, try to find a way to get the maximum enjoyment out of it with the highest degree of moderation. Yep. Because it's I, fun. I it's, it's the best hobby. Yeah, and I think it, I think that's great advice, right? Um, you know, my my biggest advice, uh, and you'll actually hear this from Denny Khan all the time. If you if you if you if you're on any type of uh, uh, forums out there, they'll they'll be like, "What's your biggest advice?" And he'll be like, "Don't drink and brew," right? So <laughs> <laughs> there's also that one, which is don't get don't get drunk and try to brew beer. If you want to mess up your beer, that's the number one way to do it. So. Yeah. Uh, Awesome. Well, Chino, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to go through uh, this list. This was a, a, a wonderful conversation and, and always great to talk to you on the podcast, even though we do talk often. And, uh, you know, obviously, you're, you're always welcome to be on the show. So if you, and, and excited to see uh, some of the shows that you might put out here in the future as well. So uh, thanks for being on this episode. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure and uh, I had a lot of fun. So, I'd like to thank Chino for taking the time to come on this week's show. As you know, he is a contributor for the show, and if you're curious about that article, just head on over to homebrewingdiy.beer and look for the article named Mistakes That Even Advanced Homebrewers Make. It's just a few weeks ago, so it should be pretty easy to find. You can find us on all of the socials. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all under at homebrewingdiy. And that's it for this week, and we'll talk to you next week on Homebrewing DIY.
Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now